Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17, and we'll be looking at uh, Paul's sermon that he preached to the Athenians when he's uh, on the Areopagus, the hill of Ares, also known as the hill of Mars or Mars Hill, the Roman version Mars of the Greek god Ares. So let me uh, begin reading in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22, and we'll read down through verse 34, and we'll look and see how the Apostle Paul preaches to those who are basically biblically illiterate. So I'll begin reading in verse 22, and again, since I'm reading the inspired Word of God Please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And may God bless the reading of his word. So the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's now in Athens. And uh, as is his custom, he went to the synagogue and he preached to the Jews, to the God-fearing Greeks, and no doubt some of them came to faith. But he also went out into the marketplace, in the Agora. 
And there he's preaching and teaching. And there are different philosophers there, the Epicureans, the Stoics that we looked at last time, and then just the general populace that were very much given to idolatry. So Paul is going to, uh, he's, been, he's been asked by these philosophers to come to the Areopagus, which is known as, again, the Hill of Ares. And there is an important council that met on top of this, uh, this hill, possibly still in the days of Paul, or it may have moved down to the Agora, the marketplace. We're not exactly sure. But they want Paul to explain to him what he's preaching because some of them said, well, he's an idle babbler. Others were saying he's proclaiming some strange deities, but since they were kind of intoxicated with wanting to always hear something new, they were interested. So they asked him to come down and appear before this city council that still had authority on matters of religion and morals and ethics to present his message for evaluation. So now he goes down to the Areopagus and begins to preach to an audience far different than what he would find in the synagogue. When Paul's in the synagogue, he's going to be quoting Scripture. He's going to be reasoning from the Old Testament with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. But at the Areopagus, they don't know the Scriptures. They don't come from a Jewish background. They don't know the Old Testament. So he takes a different approach and appeals more to natural revelation than to special revelation, which we'll see in just a moment. Let me kind of briefly walk through again just to uh, show you. This is uh, the main fortress in Athens. This would be the uh, Acropolis. And this is what it may have looked like in Paul's day. You have the Parthenon, the big building on the right, dedicated to the goddess Athena, who is kind of the patron goddess of the city. Athens got their name from Athena. Big statue of her out in the courtyard. Another huge statue made of gold and ivory inside the temple. There are a bunch of other temples on top of the Acropolis as well. This is what it looks like today. The ruins of it. The Parthenon is still has been uh, largely reconstructed. At least the outer columns. Magnificent building. Uh, here you see it closer up with a statue of Athena. One of the great... Uh, gods that gods of Olympus that was worshipped by the people, and then you find uh, an overview of the city. You have the Acropolis on top. You have the Areopagus, which was a hill very close to the Acropolis, about a hundred yards away, and that's where this meeting, this council, normally met for centuries. The debate is whether they were still meeting on top of this hill when Paul arrived or whether they had moved down into the Agora or the marketplace, and they would have uh, met in the Royal Stoa, one of the buildings down here. We don't know for sure, it really doesn't matter. But here's another picture of the Acropolis in the background, and then you have the Areopagus here in the lower part. Here's some stairs that you can take to get up to the top of the Areopagus. You wanted to go up on top. Here's from the Acropolis looking down on the Areopagus. Again, this was a very famous 
hill, one of the seven hills of Rome. I think at least the Acropolis was, but this was an important hill because this council had met there for many, many, many centuries. Here's looking from the Areopagus down to the marketplace, some of the ruins of the marketplace where the building may have been, where they now met at. But in all of this, what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul is going to present to them truth about God that they did not understand being idolaters and worshiping all these pagan gods that they did. So the sermon that we just read, again, is Paul's blueprint on how to witness to the biblically illiterate They don't know the Scriptures. They don't acknowledge the authority of the Word of God. They don't believe in the inspiration of the Word of God like we do. So they're not going to take it as an authority if we quote Scripture to them. So in effect, what Paul does is gives them biblical truth without necessarily quoting Scripture all the time like he does if he's in the synagogue preaching to Jews. It's very important that we give to people who are biblically illiterate a clear and accurate picture of the character of God. And this is where Paul is going to begin. He's going to start real basic. Let me tell you about the true God. And I think that even in our day, it's very important that when we're sharing the gospel with Christ, that we begin with God. Because you cannot assume that people today understand the character of God. And the character of God is the foundation upon which the gospel of Jesus Christ really is built. If they don't understand the character of God, then they will not have a clear understanding of the gospel. So the the character of God, the attributes of God, really become the canvas upon which the glory and the colors of the gospel message is painted. And that's what we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is going to do as he begins to preach to these who are biblically illiterate. Let me just uh, start with a couple of quotes to show you the importance of this approach. Walter Chantry in his book, Today's Gospel, said, Evangelism always requires preaching on the attributes of God. You cannot assume that people today are even anywhere close to understanding the true God of the Bible. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said unworthy thoughts about God are the essence of idolatry. And that's exactly the nature of the people Paul is preaching to. They are idolaters. They have unworthy thoughts of God. So he wants to begin by giving them a clear picture of the glory of God's character. And then A.W. Pink in his book on the attributes of God said, an unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. So they need to know something about God. And usually in a full-fledged gospel presentation, the sinner needs to know four things. He needs to know about the character of God. Then he needs to know about the character of man, the character and work of Christ, and the character of faith, true saving faith. And this is where Paul begins. I think when we get to the end of his sermon, he gets cut off and he doesn't really get to complete everything. No doubt he wanted to say, 
Because once he got to the resurrection, that blew their minds. None of these people believed in a bodily resurrection. So they that started a hubbub and that kind of cut his message off at that point. But let's, uh, let's go ahead and pick it up from where he begins in, um, in verse 22. So let's, uh, let's look there. And by the way, you're going to notice a difference with what Paul's approach is and the modern approach of evangelism today. When people are preaching the gospel today and they begin to tell people about God, what is the one attribute that almost they fixate entirely upon? God's love. You don't find it mentioned at all in Paul's lesson on theology proper. Doesn't mention it once. In fact, guess how many times the word love occurs in the book of Acts with all the different sermons that are preached in the book of Acts. How many times is God's love mentioned? Not one time. Now that's interesting. Now obviously Paul talked about the love of God. But there's a place for understanding God's love after you understanding after you understand the rest of the character of God. So it's an interesting observation. Well, let's uh, begin in verse 22. So Paul stands up in the midst of the Areopagus. And he said, men of Athens. Now, this was kind of a traditional, respectful approach to this council. Other orators began exactly the same way. Men of Athens. And Paul takes that same customary beginning to his sermon. He goes on to say, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Remember, he had walked through the city back up in verse 16, and he had noticed that it was drowning in idols. Everywhere you look, there are idols. 10,000 people lived in Athens. 30,000 idols were found in Athens. As they said, it's easier to run into an idol than to a human in the city of Athens back in this time. Everywhere you went, you found idols. So Paul uh, somewhat tactfully says, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. And they were. They worshipped the gods of Olympia. They had temples and shrines and altars and statues everywhere. And Paul's spirit was greatly grieved, remember, back up in verse 16, as he observed them. Also, the Epicureans and the Stoics had their own brand of religion. So it was everywhere. He's just making that observation. And then in verse 23, he says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So Paul has observed that, you know, here you got all these superstitious idolaters with all these different gods that different people worship. Just take your pick. And he said, and, and apparently within that culture, they thought, well, you know what? Maybe there's a God that we don't know about. And if we don't acknowledge him, then our crops may fail and he may do bad things to us. So let's make an altar to the unknown God just to cover all of our religious bases. You know, talk about being syncretistic in their religion. I mean, this is it. 
They wanted to worship all of them. They didn't want to offend any of them. So he, he makes this observation that you even have an altar to an unknown God. Now, Paul is going to use this to segue into an exposition of the one and only true God whom they do not know. And they've admitted they don't know him. The altar says to an unknown God. They're saying we don't know this God. And Paul uses that as a bridge to go from their paganism to the God of the Bible. And since they are interested in what is new, we saw that in verse 21. He knows that they will be interested in learning about this unknown God that apparently Paul says he knows something about. So at least at this point, they're willing to hear him out at a certain level. I think one of the lessons we can learn from this is look for points of contact with unbelievers to open the door for the gospel. Paul made observations of what he saw and he used that as a bridge into the character of God. Jesus did this with the woman at the well, right? The issue of water, her thirst, her physical thirst, her need for physical water. He used as a bridge to spiritual water. And I think so what we learn is that Paul is doing something very similar. He's taking an object of their worship, which gives him the opportunity to tell them about the God whom they do not know by confession they don't know. So now starting in verse 24, we find because they do not have the Bible, he does not begin quoting Scripture, but he's going to utilize general revelation, or we could say natural revelation, because God's fingerprints are all over his creation. And they're clearly visible to those who are not blinded by their own sin. Now this is going to be new revelation to them, but uh, let's walk through here and see how it begins to present it. Notice in verse 24, the God who made. The God singular. (laughs) At the very outset, He's already blowing their minds. See, they believe in polytheism. Many, many, many gods. He says, God, singular. There's only one God. So the very first expression is a testimony to monotheism. Not the smorgasbord of your pagan deities, but God is only one. There's only one God. So he begins there. Then in verse 24, he says, he speaks to God as the creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. So this God created the heavens and the earth in verse 24. In verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind. So He made men as well as the physical universe. So He's the Creator. Now, this would have contradicted the Epicurean view that the world is a result of chance combination of atoms. That was their view. No personal creator, just a chance combination of atoms, and that explains the world. That was the Epicurean view. The Stoics believed in pantheism, that there's no personal God, but everything is God. 
So by admitting to a personal creator who created the heavens and the earth, the universe, the world, and man, it's totally different than what they would have believed. He's the creator God. And why is that important? Because if God created me, then I'm accountable to Him. And that is essential truth to understand for the Gospel's sake. If God created you and me, then we are obligated and accountable to obey Him and worship Him. It establishes human accountability. So the doctrine of creation, that God is our Creator, is absolutely foundational to someone understanding why they're going to be held accountable for their sin. Because God created them. So extremely important. Again, totally different. This is new revelation to them. And then notice in verse 24, he adds to that, God made the world and all things in it since He is Lord of heaven and earth. He not only created the world, He is the Lord over the world. And this is a reference to God being the sovereign, the ruler, the governor of His universe. In other words, He personally oversees what He has created. He's the Lord. Now again, some of these uh, philosophers acknowledged some of the gods of Olympus, but in their view, they were like deists. These gods just didn't, wasn't interested in what happened on earth, wasn't interested in what's going on in creation. But this God is. He is the Lord over it all. He oversees everything that He made. Again, totally different than what they would have believed. And then look again at verse 24. And he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Wow. Talk about different than what uh, they would have uh, believed there in Athens. Because there are temples and shrines everywhere to their pagan gods. And Paul comes right out and points out the, the difference. The true God does not dwell in temples made with hands. And this speaks to God's transcendence. That you can't put God in a man-made box. It's absurd. And that includes the Jerusalem temple as well. Because you remember Solomon, right after he finished creating the temple, building the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, said, Behold, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. So even the temple in Jerusalem cannot contain God. God doesn't, like He's confined to live inside this this man-made house, this temple. No, no, no. God is, is transcendent. He's infinite. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Again, totally different than what they would have believed. And then look at verse 25. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. So this speaks to God's self-sufficiency. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything that we have to offer. And this is very humbling, is it not? Because God doesn't need you. And God doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything I have. God doesn't need my money. 
God doesn't need my service. God doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need my help in any way. Now, He delights in those things and He, he commands those things, but He doesn't need it. The pagan gods did. They needed man to do things for them. So a totally different concept of God. So Paul is saying that this unknown God that you don't know anything about, that I'm proclaiming to you, He's not like the gods you worship. He doesn't need anything at all. John Stott made the interesting observation that we can't reduce God to the status of a household pet that's dependent upon us for food and shelter. Because God says in Psalm 50, the world is mine and all it contains. So God doesn't need anything that we could ever offer to Him. God is not like the idols of, of men. You remember in book of Judges, sorry, 1 Samuel, when uh, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into the temple of Dagon, one of the gods that the Philistines worshipped. And during the night, Dagon fell over on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. Their God fell over. So what do you do? Well, the God can't pick himself up. So the worshippers had to go in there the next morning and they got probably five or six guys and they, they picked their God back up and put him back on the stand. And the next morning what happened? He fell over again. Over this time, his head was cut off and his hands were cut off because that's one of the ways you normally executed your enemies in the Old Testament. So now he's, he's incapacitated, he's headless, he's handless. So what do you got to do now? Well, you got to pick him back up and get your super glue out and try to put, the, put him back together again. This is the nature of the God that they worship. And what Paul is saying, that's not God. The true God, He is not served by human hands and He doesn't need anything. He's the sovereign, omnipotent, creator God. God needs nothing from us. We need everything from Him. And so He's just drawing this stark black and white contrast between their pagan idols and the true God of Scripture. Now let's read on in verse 25. Since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. This speaks to God's providence. It's God who gives life. It's God who gives breath. It's God who gives all things. Your material blessings, all the things that you might have, your crops to grow, the rain to fall, everything God gives, it's He through His providence oversees everything within His world. So He gives a testimony to God sustaining their life on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, moment-by-moment basis. He gives life. Life is in His hands. Breath. And the Scriptures in many places say that even our, our breath is from God. It's given to us by His hand. And as a kid, I... I 
had asthma really bad. And I remember just those claustrophobic times of when you can't get a breath. And some of y'all struggle with that even now. But as by the grace of God, as I finally got over that, and I could take a big deep breath, I could just thank God for, for the breath. But our breath, whether it's large or small, is in the hand of God. His providence rules over all of these things. Now this certainly contradicted the Epicurean belief that God was an absent God. And it contradicted the Stoic belief that God was in everything. No, what Paul is presenting is that this personal God who in His providence rules over everything of your life, even your breath that you take. And then he adds to that in verse 26 that he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Again, his providence. Not only does it rule over life and breath and all things, but he also, through his providence, made from one Adam. So here he's He's giving testimony to the creation of Adam in the Garden of Eden and through the propagation of the human race through every nation that lives on all the face of the earth. So that whole movement of Adam and Eve now to all these nations, that's God's providence. That's God's oversight. That's His direction, blessing, guidance, movement. He's in control of all of that. He governs the growth and proliferation of the human race from one man to a multitude of nations. In addition to that, in verse 26, He determines their appointed times. When you are born. When you will die. What year you're born. What day you're born. All of the appointed times for you are in His hands as well. And on top of that, not only our appointed times, but the boundaries of our habitation in verse 26. Where you will be born. Not only when you'll be born, but where you will be born. Where you will move. Where you're living today. Where you'll live a year from now. Or wherever it might be. He determines their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So that both our times and our places are all in God's hands. He's in full control of the history of all peoples. This is his view of God that he's telling these biblically illiterate people that they need to understand this truth about God. And then in verse 27, he now says that God created mankind for a purpose. And he says in verse 27 that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So now he begins to make this a little bit more personal, emphasizing their responsibility that God has made us. He's our creator. He has made us for a purpose. And that purpose, verse 27, is that they would seek God. The true God. The unknown God. Not your idols, but that you would seek the one and only true God. That's our purpose. We're accountable to God to seek after God. 
Now sadly, ever since the sin of Adam, sin has distorted our hearts and our nature so that Paul will later say in Romans 3.11, there are none who seeks after God. So we are created to seek after God. The problem is, there is none who seeks after God. Because of our depravity, because of the hardness of our hearts, because of our sin has distorted us. Like Calvin said, now our heart is a perpetual factory for making idols. We don't want to worship God at all. But we are accountable and responsible to seek after God. Though we do not do that. And then look at what he adds in verse 27. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. If perhaps they might grope for him. This word for grope is actually used in different ways, but it's used of blind people. They're trying to find something in the dark and they're just kind of they're groping around they're, they're They're feeling around trying to find where the light switch is or whatever it is they might be looking for. And it's interesting for you Greek scholars that Paul utilizes what's probably a fourth class conditional sentence, which emphasizes that this is just hypothetical that they'll find him. They'll be groping but they're not going to find him. And that's due to the innate twisting of sin within their hearts, due to the fact that they are blind to the truth of God and their hearts are completely bent towards creating their own God and worshiping Him. And I think this groping is also describes what natural man does if all he has is natural revelation. Natural revelation, according to Romans 1, gives a clear picture of certain of God's attributes. But if your heart is blinded to that, even then you don't see it, and you exchange the truth of God for a lie. So you just end up groping. You're trying to find meaning in life. You're trying to find purpose in life. You're trying to connect with the divine. And you'll end up finding an idol. You won't find the true God. And then at the end of verse 27, he says, though he is not far from each one of us. And this is a reference to God's eminence. He's transcendent. He's not a part of his creation. He's separate from his creation. But at the same time, he's omnipresent. He is everywhere in his creation. Not not the pantheism that he is the creation, but he is in his creation. He is eminent everywhere. So Paul can attest to the reality that he is not far from each one of us. He is very, very near. And if you seek him in truth, then you will find him. And then he moves on to verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and exist. And here he's uh, this expression speaks again to the fact that we are totally dependent upon God, that in him we live, we move, we exist. And the little preposition in could be translated by. So it's either we live in the sphere of God's world 
in the sphere of God's presence because He's omnipresent, or we live by His power, by His grace. It could, it, maybe both ideas are involved here. But the point is, is that we live in His world. He's all around us. And everything in our life depends upon Him. It's in Him that we live and move and exist. We can't escape this God. You can't run from Him. Psalm 139. He is everywhere. And He's not only that, but He's supplying the grace that we need to for everything that we do and accomplish. This word for move in verse 28. In Him we live and move. And exists. This word move is used a number of times, and even in the Gospels, of someone wagging their head, just moving their head. Just slight, insignificant movements are all done in the realm of God's presence and ultimately by the power of His providence. Even small muscle movements are under His sovereign providential control. Our existence. Our movements all depend upon God. As you can just imagine how this is blowing their minds because their little bitty truncated gods don't have anything of the attributes of this God. We can't escape it. We live in God's world and we live by His sustaining grace and we cannot deny it. So it's at this point, Paul then seeks to establish another uh, bit of, of connection with them, a little common ground, when he says in verse 28, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So now Paul references some of their Greek poets. And Paul was educated in these things. He understood. He's going to... He quotes Greek pagan poets and other letters that he writes as well. He's a very knowledgeable man. He knew exactly the, the, the religious beliefs of the people that he's addressing. And when you look at the first part of verse 28, in him we live and move and exist, uh, some have found this expression uh, in the writings of Epimenides of Crete in the 6th century B.C. who wrote this about Zeus. Because apparently Epimenides, is, in this poem that he wrote, uh, is one of the, the offspring of Zeus is trying to explain that you can't find Zeus's grave, that he's actually alive. And so he describes Zeus in this way as in him we live and move and exist. But that's in a very trunc truncated and, and very minimalist type of idea. And then later on in verse uh, 28, when he quotes, for we are also his children. That comes from a Greek poet, Eratus, 3rd century B.C., who actually came from Cilicia, from where Paul came from. So Paul was very familiar with Eratus and quotes him on several occasions. And he's also, Eratus is also attributing this to Zeus. And what Paul, in effect, by quoting these two guys, he's not in any way endorsing a belief in Zeus or maybe it's Jupiter or whoever it might be, but he's applying what they falsely ascribe to their false gods 
to the true living God. And the point seems to be that God is, that, excuse me, Paul is acknowledging that by God's common grace, even pagans can discover a few single strands of light, though they misdirect it to their pagan God, though they have a concept of it, they, they attribute it to their pagan God when it only really truly belongs to the, the God that they're ignorant of. So Paul is setting the record straight. He's establishing some common ground by just quoting them, saying, look, they understand that we are children of God too. Though they don't, they don't even really understand what they're saying. But there's a truth there that applies to the true God. Now, when he says that we are his children, we're, we're talking about by creation or by something like that, not by redemption, as Paul will spell out later in other places. But Paul quotes some of their pagan poets and corrects it, redirects it to, that, to apply that truth to the God that they are ignorant of. And then we move on to verse 29 where he says, being then the children of God, assuming this truth that we are children of God and should share His nature if we're His children, then we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. In other words, he's making this point that if we really are children of God by nature, created in the image of our God, and we are His children, then why is it that you're calling this lifeless piece of marble or stone or metal or wood your God? It just doesn't make sense. So he's actually using a bit of a logical apologetic to help them see just the utter folly of the worshiping of these idols as gods. God is not a lifeless metal stone or image or idol formed by the art and the mind of man. Don't demote the true God, the living God, the infinite God into a man-made lifeless piece of rock. Don't do that. It's illogical. If we're made in God's image, then don't try to make our Creator like a piece of, inano- of lifeless material. And it's folly to equate God in that way. I'm reminded of Psalm 115. When the psalmist says, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. And they cannot even make a sound with their throat. And then the psalmist goes on and adds this indictment when he says, and those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. So you want to worship this? You're going to become just like it spiritually. Deader than a doornail. You have no sensitivity at all to the true realities of God's existence. You're blind, you're deaf, you're dumb, you can't feel. You're going to become just like that piece of wood or metal that you think is your God. And you know, really all idolatry 
wants to shrink God down to our size so we can control him. That's what idolatry is really all about. I take God and I shrink him down so I can control him. And actually, this God likes my sins. And he's, he likes all of the problems that I have in terms of my sinful issues. He endorses it. He's okay with me. So we want to control God. We want to make a God after our image rather than worshiping the God who made us after His. So this is absolute folly. Isaiah emphasizes the folly of the idolaters taking a tree, cutting it in half, making a fire out of half of the tree, cooking their food, warming himself by the fire. And the other half, he, he gets out his hammers and his chisels and his saws and his planes and he, and he molds it into an, an image, an idol of God. He puts it up in his, on the shelf in his house and then he bows down to it and worships it and sacrifices to it. The tree he just cut down. Half the tree. The other half of that God tree he burnt for food, cooked his food and warmed himself. It's utter folly. And so what Paul is trying to emphasize to them again in verse 29 is that the divine nature that made us is not that that you're worshiping. And then in verse 30, he says, therefore, based upon all of this truth of the character and the attributes of God, he started with theology proper. You start with, you got to know the God you're dealing with. And went through all these attributes. And then in verse 30, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So now the first part of verse 30, he speaks to God's mercy. That God overlooked their times of ignorance. That God created man to seek after God, but they have not done that. They have created their own gods to worship. Instead, they have not sought after the one and only true God. They are accountable their ignorance is bone deep. Their hearts are spiritually dead and hardened. Their minds are full of futility and darkness. Read Ephesians 4. But God has overlooked their centuries of ignorance. Now in saying that in verse 30, that God has overlooked the times of ignorance, He's not saying, well, you know, it's, it really wasn't sinful what you were doing. That's not what He's saying. He doesn't mean that, that they were forgiven or that they were excusable. Absolutely not. But it's similar to what Paul will write in Romans 3 that God passed over the sins previously. What does it mean pass over? It doesn't mean He just doesn't even, even take any consideration at all. But what it means is similar to what He's saying here. He overlooked their times of ignorance. How did He overlook it? Well, in two ways. He didn't send them prophets to come and preach to them and to rebuke them for their idolatry. He overlooked it. He didn't send this prophets to expose the folly of their idolatry like He did to Israel. Over and over and over again, when Israelites fell into idolatry, He sent them the prophets. 
But with their sin, their idolatry, he overlooked it. He didn't send them the mercy and the grace of prophets. And secondly, he did not punish them in their lifetime as they deserve for their, for their idolatry. He overlooked it. Doesn't mean he's always going to overlook it. There's a payday to come. There's a judgment day to come. But he overlooked it so that he did not visit them with the judgment that they deserve for their idolatry through all those previous generations. He overlooked it. Yes, they will give an account for every sin. But it wasn't during their lifetime that God punished them. Romans 1 kind of spells this all out. They could clearly know God through creation, but they exchanged the glory of God for an image of corruptible man and birds and animals. They exchanged the true God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So God gave them over in Romans 1. He gave them over to degrading passions. He gave them over to a depraved mind to engage in all their sins. And God left them alone in their sinful ignorance and did not judge them in their lifetime on earth for their sins. That day again is coming. But He overlooked it. And I think that's what that is referring to in that particular verse. But now in verse 30, the second part, God is now declaring... Better, God is now commanding. The Greek word is better translated commanding to men that all people everywhere should repent. So now here's the responsibility. He's told them about the true God. He's pointed out to them how baseless and futile their idolatry is. So now what's their response? They should repent. God commands all everywhere to repent. And this includes the Athenians, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and everybody else. Notice the universal command to all people everywhere. All people in all places need to repent. The word repent means to have a a change of mind about their sin, a change of mind about their idolatry, a change of mind about God. They need to repent. They need to acknowledge the sinfulness and to turn from that. That's what true repentance does. They have insulted God through their idolatry and now it's time to humble themselves, acknowledge their sin against a holy, true God and repent. And why do they need to repent? Because in verse 31, God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. A day of judgment is coming. I tell you what, many times when we preach the gospel today, we do not talk about judgment. Why else do you need to repent? I mean, what do you need to be saved from? If it's not the judgment that we deserve as sinners. So the judgment day is coming. God will judge them for their idolatry. And they are totally guilty and without excuse. I like what J.C. Ryle said. The beginning of the way of, to heaven is to feel that we are on the way to hell. 
Several things about this judgment. Number one, it's determined. Verse 31, he has fixed a day. That day is fixed. It is on God's calendar. It has been ordained by God. No one can change it. Will it be today? Could it be tomorrow? We don't know when that day is, but we know it has been fixed. And every day, we get a day closer to that day. It's a reality, and it will not change. It has been fixed by God on His calendar. Secondly, it's universal. Notice that He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. Everybody. He will judge the world. All will be summoned. The living and the dead, none will escape. Thirdly, it will be righteous. He will judge the world in righteousness. The standard will be God's holy law. The judgment will be based on our words, our works, our motives and secrets of the heart. It will be a righteous judgment. No one who is condemned will ever be able to accuse God of being unfair or unjust. It will be righteous. And though the day has not been disclosed, the judge has. So fourthly, the judge has been appointed by God already. And he will be a resurrected man. Obviously, Jesus Christ. So that Christ will either be your Savior today or He will be your judge on that day. And it's interesting, I think, that Paul was not embarrassed to speak of the coming judgment. Later in Acts 24, when Paul is standing before Governor Felix in Caesarea and he's been arrested and he's on his way eventually, he'll be going to Rome for trial But before Governor Felix, Paul spoke of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I really think that when we share the gospel, we need to include this. Do you know there's a day of judgment coming? Do you know that God created you and me and we're accountable to Him and He's going to hold us accountable? There's a day of judgment that's coming. I mean, why else do you need salvation? That's why we need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from our sin? Yeah, but saved from the consequences of our sin. The punishment of our sin. That's what we're being saved from. And without a judgment, there's no fear. So it appears at this point that Paul is cut off. Once he mentions the resurrection of the judge... That God has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Then at that point, they interrupt him. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, probably laughing, mocking, because they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Others were told, said, We shall hear you again concerning this. Hmm, interesting. Don't buy it, but you know, I'd like to I'd like to hear a little more about it. And so Paul went out of their midst. At this point they stopped it. So he said, Well, he didn't even get to the cross. No, he didn't get to the cross. He didn't get to the atonement of Christ because I think they ended it. I think that's where he would be going. 
but they cut him short. And oftentimes we don't get to share everything that we want to concerning the gospel with someone we're talking with. And that's okay. God's in control. It's not up to us to convince people. Only God can convince them. But we share as much as we can, faith as faithfully as we can. We leave, leave the results to God. So verse 33, Paul went out of their midst. But some joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. So one of these great council members was converted. He believed, which means that Paul must have gone on and shared more about Christ and his death and dying for our sins. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So again, I think what Paul has done is given us a, a masterpiece of how to Start a gospel conversation with people that are biblically illiterate. We begin with God as a creator and we, we, we see that uh, there's an accountability that's, uh, that's linked to that doctrine. And some people will sneer just like they do here. Uh, Richard Dawkins will sneer. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the great atheist, believes that any belief in God is utterly irrational. He said, it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant or stupid or insane or wicked. But I'd rather not consider that, he said. So he's, he's a scoffer. But by the power of God's grace, some will believe. So Paul challenges us when we share the gospel with people who are biblically illiterate to begin with the character of God. It's a good place to start. Now, you may not start there in the way things work out, but they need to understand who God is. They need to understand that their idols are shameful, that they will not save them, they will not make them happy, they will not fulfill them. They need to repent and turn to the Lord. And you know, we live in an age that's just as much as full of idolatry as Paul's day. Everywhere you look, people can make idols out of anything. Money, fame, power, sex, food, drugs, people, work, recreation, possessions. People have all kinds of idols. Not just the the totem poles that we bow down before, but idols within our heart. People have idols all over the place, carrying around tons and loads of idols within their hearts. And that's why they need to understand the nature of the character of God. So to summarize very quickly Paul's sermon to the Athenians, God is a creator and He made you. He sustains you. He rules over all of your life. He is both transcendent and eminent. He needs nothing, but we are totally dependent upon Him for our very breath. And your idols are lies and distortions. So you are responsible to seek after God and worship God. And because you have not, you need to repent. Because God will judge you and hold you accountable for distorting the worship of Him and Rejecting it, turning away from Him, and worshiping a man-made idol. So repent, renounce your idols, and seek Him. Because there's a judgment day coming. To unbelievers, that message is for you. 
that today is a day of salvation. You are equally guilty as the Athenians. You have idols that you have placed higher in your life, more important in your life than God Himself. That is an idol. Whether it's someone else or something else, it's an idol. And God has created us to seek Him and to worship Him. And we have sinned. We have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the message to you is to repent. To believe in Jesus Christ who came and suffered on the cross and bore the sins of sinners like us and suffered in our place that whoever repents and believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Repent. Believe in Him. And receive the free gift of everlasting life. As a believer, we too will stand at the judgment. At the Bema Seed judgment of Christ. Our judgment will not be for condemnation, but for commendation. So are you serving Christ? Are you pursuing His glory more than your own personal interests? Are you trying to please the Lord every day? Our sins have been covered, but are we, are we living for Him today? Because we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ as well. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Are you serving the Lord? Will all of your works be burned up in the fire? On that day, Christ will reward those who have served Him and done good works for the glory of His name. And it challenges us to be waiting and watching and anticipating standing before the Lord and giving account as well. Not for condemnation, but for commendation. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And finally, to the Galatians, he says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. That judgment is coming. For unbelievers, they need to repent and be saved. For believers, let that motivate us to serve Christ, to live for Christ, because He will reward what His grace has produced in our life, the good works His grace has produced for His glory throughout all eternity. So, hopefully that has helped us some in knowing how to share the Gospel with those who are biblically illiterate. And now, Lord, send us those kinds of people so we can practice and share the Gospel that in God's mercy, some may believe and be saved. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we uh, <clears throat> thank You for this uh, amazingly deep and theologically intricate sermon that the Apostle Paul preached to these uh, biblically illiterate sinners. But so important is a correct understanding of who God is to show the contrast in all the idols that we have preferred over God to our shame and to our sin. So Lord, we thank You that we can uh, uh, listen to the Apostle Paul, that we can learn to better understand the 
people that we share Christ with to be sensitive to their backgrounds, to understand their greatest need is salvation, and hopefully to be guided by your spirit and how best to present the truth of the gospel to them. Lord, help us. We're weak. We're fearful. Give us your spirit. Give us the boldness and power of the spirit that we might be good witnesses for Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.